Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Only a tiny group of people have ever become truly famous novelists. Given the sexism of the publishing industry over the decades, a much tinier subset of famous novelists are women. And a vanishingly small slice of those people are Latin Americans. In fact, there's actually only one, at least here in the United States, and that's Isabel Allende, a longtime friend of Forum. She's got a new novel, Violeta, which takes place in the 100 years between when the Spanish flu hit Chile and the coronavirus pandemic. It's a saga about family secrets, exile of different types, and resilience, a reflection on the century when the world became technologically modern and socially fractured. That's all next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. As Isabel Allende's new book, Violeta, opens, we find ourselves in the midst of a pandemic under quarantine conditions. It is 1920, and the Spanish flu is sweeping through Santiago, Chile. The title character has just been born, and she spends her early life in the virus-induced social bubble that we've all come to know and mostly despise. Inspired by Allende's own mother, Violeta is born into Chile's elite, but falls into a rural lower social stratum after the Depression wipes out her father and her father's businesses. The novel takes the form of a letter to Camilo, Violeta's grandson, who has gone poking about the family business. This letter is her attempt to lay down the historical record in black and white, virtues, vices, and all. Allende has sold some 75 million books, and because she's actually a longtime resident of Marin, we've been lucky enough to have her as a frequent guest on Forum Isabel Allende, welcome back to the show. Alexis, how are you? Thank I'm, you for having me. Oh, thanks for thanks for coming on. It's a real honor. I can tell you that. Look, look, before you continue, let me tell you that Chile is never mentioned in the book. It's an unnamed country because I wanted to have the literary license to move certain things around. So I didn't mention the country, which I didn't do either in the House of the Spirits and other books that I have written. And is that just because the the exact ultra specifics of the country would, would get you caught up, would sort of detract from the story that you're trying to tell? Yeah. And also because the historical events that are really meaningful happened the, almost the, in the same way in other countries like Argentina, mm-hmm. Uruguay, sometimes Peru. So it, I, I wanted to create a sort of generic country, which, of course, resembles Chile so much that you thought it was Chile, and most people <laughs> <Yeah>. do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
Uh, can you introduce us to Violetta, this wonderful character, character based in part on your own mother? Well, um, she's born in 1920 in the midst of the influenza pandemic because uh, the pandemic uh, started on the trenches in, in 1918 during the First World War, but it took some time for it to spread all over the, the globe. Uh, because people traveled way, way less. And because it was the war, people traveled even less. And of course, there were no available commercial planes for people to move around. So the virus took more time mm-hmm. to reach everywhere. And so she's born there. And after that, the, in 1930, the, de- the de- big depression, global depression hits. Her father loses everything and commits suicide. And so the family is left stranded. They, she, she belongs to a social class that we would call uh, an upper bourgeoisie. Mm. And um, they, they have apparent wealth, but, but a very unstable kind of wealth. And so he loses everything. And the family is embarrassed because he's in debt and he has, he has done some foolish things. And so they have to sort of go into a, a self-determined exile at the, in the south of the country where she grows up. And the the fact that she leaves her social class, her family, the place where she was born, and has to create a new life makes her a very different and strong and determined young woman, Uh, not the senorita that she was expected to be. She marries young, and then uh, in a hundred years, Alexis, you can have several love affairs. (laughs) And several husbands. Look, I'm only 80 and I already have three. If you give me me 20 more, I will probably have another one. So, so, of course, she has several love affairs and and several men in her life. And when she's very old, she finds old love, which is quite a discovery. And I know that personally. So you know, in that I, century, she witnesses a lot of stuff that, influ- that in many ways determines her own life. Yeah. You know, I, I have to ask you about this, your third husband, because <laughs> apparently he heard you on the radio we and are, then got in touch. Michael Grassney <laughs> <laughs> on forum. What did me. you say? What did you say? Who and knows? I, yeah. Who knows? I don't remember. But, but he had read a couple of my books. He was driving to, from Washington to Boston. And he, um, he decided, he heard me on the radio and decided to, to email my, my office. And so he started emailing every morning and every evening for five months. This is a very stubborn person. Wait, had you, you didn't respond? Well, I responded sometimes. But uh, the, it's funny because everybody thought he was a stalker. And I had at the time a, a wonderful assistant that was a fanatic of detective miniseries. <laughs> so, she <laughs> so she researched. And Alexis, let me tell you, it's amazing how much you can find out about just a private citizen that is not famous or anything, how, you, how much you can find on the internet and otherwise. Yeah. So by the time I met him five months later, I had a file on him. <laughs> and... <laughs> And the guy was exactly what the file reflected. I mean, he, there was no nothing threatening, nothing hidden, nothing particularly interesting either. And uh, but he was a very nice guy. So we started 
three days later, he proposed, he wanted to marry me. And I thought, this guy is desperate. He needs a nurse. What's, what's wrong with him? And I said, look, forget marriage, but we can be lovers if you travel to California. He was living in New York. He had been a New York person all his life. So he sold his house, gave away everything it contained, and moved to my little house in, in Marin County. And we have been living together ever since. Wow. I mean, and we married at some point we had to get married because he insisted and I didn't want to do it. But, you know, the last straw was that his granddaughter, Anna, who was at the time seven years old, went to the librarian in her school and said, "Uh, Miss, do you know Isabel Allende? And the librarian said, yeah, yeah, I have read a couple of her books. And there was a pause. And then Anna added, she's sleeping with my grandfather. (laughs) (laughs) that is so good um that is amazing i mean your life is so novelistic i'm tempted to stay there but i want to talk about this novel in part because it's really it's really quite a lovely and beautiful novel um and i and you know one of the things that i wanted to, to ask you was you know these novels early moments kind of turn on this class hierarchy of the country that's not quite but maybe is sort of chile and I was wondering if you still recognize those little markers of upper class South American life when you run into people who've been born into privilege like that. Look, Latin America in general, Chile in particular, are like cakes of, of many layers, like castes in India. Social classes are as pervasive as racism, but more subtle. Racism is so obvious that you can always see it. The social classes, you have to be there to really perceive what it is, the privilege and how, uh, even if you are very successful, you cannot, you cannot get into certain classes. And it's not about money. It's about where you were born, your ancestors, whatever, you know? That has been, become more permeable now, but not much. And in Chile, there, there, there is a very interesting thing happening right now. And I think that this social class thing is one of the causes. And uh, in uh, October of 2019, they raised the fee of the subway by the equivalent of four mm-hmm. cents. And there was a sort of explosion and millions of people went out into the streets to protest. And what they were really protesting about was inequality because the country has done well economically but the wealth is not well distributed and everything is privatized and so people live on credit and have a very hard time and these things are marked by social classes so uh, the 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 result of this sort of explosion which we call the estallido was that uh, the country decided to create to draft a new constitution. And the question is, what kind of country do we want? Which is a question that no country today is asking except Chile. And in this idealistic constitution, one of the first points is equality, an equal distribution of wealth. And that that doesn't mean that the liberal economy that we have will change. Probably the system will not. 
but people will be taxed more. There will be more responsibility from the state. Things will not be all private. Uh, the idea is somehow to challenge the class system. Do you think Americans who were born and kind of grow up here both have and perceive those kinds of class distinctions of the kind that you were describing in Chile? No, because because we have this idea that this is a democracy in which class doesn't matter. There is no aristocracy, no royalty. Supposedly, there are no classes, but we know there are. It's very different when you are born in privilege and go to private schools and and Ivy League universities, your chances in life are very different. But here, what is very obvious, and we all know about it, is racism, Mm -hmm. which is a form of class system too, because who are in the lower classes? People of color. Yeah. We're talking with novelist Isabel Allende. Her new book is Violeta. We want to know, what's a family secret you learned late in life that changed the way you think about your family? Or do you have questions for Isabel Allende? Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook or at KQED Forum. Or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Before we go to the break, Isabel, I want to just ask you to give a, a recommendation for a book um, that not, not one of your own, but somebody else's book uh, that you've really what? loved. Alexis, why would I recommend somebody else's if I can recommend mine? <laughs> well, I will tell you what I'm reading right well, what I just finished, which I should have read two years ago. Um, it's called The Winter Soldier by mm. Daniel Mason. And it's Soldier. a beautiful book. Beautiful. So Winter Soldier by Daniel Mason, a great recommendation from the novelist Isabel Allende. We'll be back with more after a short break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with the novelist Isabel Allende about her new book, Violetta, which turns on a letter from Violetta to her grandson, Camilo, who as a teenager set out to dig through the past and unearth the family's secrets. What's a family secret you learned late in life that changed the way you think about 
your life and loved ones. You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum, or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Isabel, in your mind, what was Violetta doing in setting down you know, her life in this way, the century of life, a very, very full life that she lived, uh, in, for her grandson? Well, the, the book begins with a little, very small introduction in which she says, look, Camilo, I have written to you thousands of letters, forget them. Uh, and this is a summary. And this is a clean, transparent summary of my sins and my few virtues. And I have, I have had a very interesting life that would be for a novel. And uh, that's, that's her excuse. But in a way... Alexis, what happened was that when my mother died, my mother died like Violeta in the book, very old. Mm -hmm. And um, she, her body had deteriorated completely. She was completely dependent on other people even to go to the bathroom. But her mind was always lucid, ironic, curious. She was incredible. And so uh, along our long life, together, we were never together. We were most of our lives separated. And we wrote to each other every single day. And my, in, my, in our correspondence, my mother was telling me her daily life, but also the past and the things that happened inside her, uh, memories, um, desires, dreams, fears, all that is in the letters. And that was uh, like, like the platform that I use for Violeta. The idea of a person who has a record of her life. Because you really have, I heard it's 20,000 letters that you exchanged with your mother? Well, we wrote to each other for decades. And at the end of the year, my mother would give me back my letters and I had collected hers. So I would put them in a plastic box and mark the year. And they would be in the garage, piling up in the garage. And then at one point, I think it was two or three years ago, my son um, said, well, they are deteriorating. The old letters were written on paper. They are deteriorating. Let's digitalize the whole thing. Yeah. And so he hired a company to do that. And it took some time. And then they counted not all the letters one by one, but apparently there are between 600 and 800 letters per box. And if you multiply, it's around 24,000 letters. Wow. But those are not only my mother's, also mine. Yeah. Was it all longhand or did you ever switch to No, no, no. Typing? It was longhand at the beginning. When I was 16, my mother was li living in Turkey. And so we would write to each other by hand and send it on the mail. And the mail would take a month or two. And sometimes I would get seven letters in a, in, on a row and or sometimes a week went by without a letter. But it wasn't a conversation. It was just a, an ongoing monologue. And that's the way we treated each other in, with that kind of long monologue. And then fax was invented. And so we started faxing each other. But that, you know, faxes at the time would very the easily... long rolls of paper and all that. Yeah. But after a, a few months, the, the ink would fade completely and then you couldn't read it. So then we stopped that and we went back to the letters until email was, was invented. And then my mother went crazy. She would, the idea that she could write to me and I would receive it in five minutes, she would write to me sometimes several times a day. Wow. 
What what was she like as a writer, as a narrator? You know, she she belongs to that generation that was taught calligraphy, perfect grammar. If you made a spelling mistake, it was it it was so ugly. It was like farting in public. <laughs> so you you couldn't do that. All that is lost. But my mother had that that. Uh, that love of language, which maybe I inherited from her. Wow. She would never repeat two adjectives in a paragraph. She, she, she had a, a sort of elegant way of saying things. Yeah. Were, are you ever going to publish those letters or a selection? No, of those no, no, no. If you would see the kind of stuff we wrote, I mean, she would have a fight with my stepfather. And then I would get this letter in which there were several ways of killing him. No, no. <laughs> Maybe not fit for public uh, no, no, consumption. No. <laughs> and I would do the same, by the way. Yeah? <laughs> so uh, I have to say about this book, there's quite a lot of sex in it for a book that takes the form of a letter from a grandmother to a grandson. And it felt like that was really <laughs> quite an intentional choice for a grandmother to say like, this, I, my sexuality remained through my life. My sexuality was a very important part of, of what guided my life through time. Yes. I mean, there, there is sex, but not details. I mean, who put what, where, there's a few details. that's not in the book. Isabel, there's a few details. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you know what? I have a very, very close relationship with my son. And one of the things he doesn't want to hear about is any detail about my sex life. But I'm willing to tell him because I don't think that's a secret. Why can't you talk about food and you cannot talk about sex? What's the problem? And that seems like a central, you know, you, in your life as a, as a feminist figure, that seems like it's been part of, your, of, of what you've been bringing to the discussion around gender and sexuality was the, the naturalness and necessity of these things. Yeah, and you have to own it as a woman, uh, because I belong to the generation that was brought up expecting men to take the initiative, men to have pleasure, and things had to be done the, the way men wanted. So it, it's my daughter's generation that that took, in, took charge of their own sexuality and things changed. Um, so I think it's very important to, to add that to the feminist menu. Yeah. I want to add in our first caller, Jaime from San Francisco. Welcome to the show, Jaime. Uh, good morning. Thank you for having me. I uh, just want to make a comment about uh, Ms. Allende. I just want to congratulate you on your success in, uh, as, as a writer. Uh, I must admit, I have not read any of your books yet, but uh, I'm, I'm, I will. But I just want to make a comment on what you, you just said about uh, Chile and the new uh, 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 effort to to draft a constitution for 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 uh, for your country. I do applaud this effort. I'm a Salvadorian who has lived most of uh, his life outside uh, his country, and I see Latin America as a whole. Uh, and I I'm very hopeful that Chile lead us into a new uh, horizon of uh, our countries being more. Uh, social, uh, 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 you know, oriented, you know, mm -hmm. I, 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 I don't know. I hope uh, with the new president also uh, things things uh, go in the right direction. And my whole admiration for, for Chile, for your country, 
for uh, for this effort. I, mm-hmm. I I thank you very much for that, and I just want to extend this to all Chileans. Hey, gracias, you. Jaime. Muchas gracias. Um, yeah, uh, thank you very much. I think that uh, what's happening in Chile also is that a new young generation is getting there in power. And um, the, what, one of the beautiful things about this new government is gender parity. The idea is to have equal number of women as men in every aspect of the society. And I think that the feminine input might change things a lot. Of course, one of the other points is inclusion that everybody's included, the, the, the indigenous people, LGBTQ+, everybody is there. And uh, that is also very important because you, all the constitutions that we have had have been drafted by an elite who ha- that has taken into account their own privileges. Yeah. Do you think there's a possibility for something like this, Daido, in the United States? Or do no. you think? No, 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 Alex. I already asked about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I attended a conference where there was a man, unfortunately, I can't remember his name, who is a constitutionalist and wrote a book about the Constitution. So I, and, and he was explaining the, the first Constitution and the amendments that it has had. And so I came forward and I said, have you heard about the, this idea in Chile? And he said, yes, I am studying it. I am fascinated, he said. And I said, "What would that be possible in the United States? And he laughed. He said, how do you see that possible? Do you think that Republicans and Democrats who cannot agree on a vaccine will be able to agree on a constitution? And I don't think this country is really asking. This is my not what he said, but... I don't think the United States is asking what kind of country do we want? Mm-hmm. What kind of world do we want? What is the future like? I hope we get started. I, I feel like so many of the shows that we've done recently Isabel, on this show are about how our very structures of governance, the things that are baked into our constitution are in fact breaking down or have been have been bent and perverted in such ways that the, the whole system um, has has stopped working. Well, people don't believe in anything nowadays. They don't believe in any of the institutions, not the government, the judiciary system, the Supreme Court, the Congress, nothing, not religion even. Mm-hmm. We're talking with novelist Isabel Allende about her new book, Violeta, and uh, life and politics. What, do you have questions for Isabel Allende about her books, about her politics, about her life? Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, KQED Forum. And you know the email is forum at kqed.org. You know, I, I wanted to ask about the way that Violetta describes her memory changing over time. She says, with time, we only remember events. Emotions fade, and I'm no longer the woman I was back then. As you look over your life, I mean, has your memory changed like that? Is that what it's felt like to you? Well, my case is different because I work with memory, as all writers do. So we work with our own experience and memory. And of course, we steal other people's lives as well. Um, So I have, and because I have been writing every single day about the day for years and years, I keep record of things. Uh, And even if I don't remember, because my memory may have failed, as I said in the book, 
you may you might remember the fact, but you don't remember the, what you felt at that moment. I can always go back to the garage, open, <laughs> yeah, go, or open your or your PDFs, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and, and get the day what happened that very day. You know, I've written a couple of memoirs, and sometimes, especially my son says, "Mother, it didn't happen that way." And I say, "Wait a minute, wait a minute, let me go to the garage. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go to the tape, son. Let's go to the garage, <laughs> and then we see what 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 really happened." And most of the time, he's right. You know. Can I say that that actually feels to me like I don't maybe a bit of a burden? Maybe you don't want to remember the way that it happened exactly. Well, there are things that. Well, it's it's very interesting because I don't go to the garage very often. Let's say I do. I go very very seldom, and I don't remember the bad stuff. I was married for twenty eight years with my second husband, and then we divorced in a very friendly and civilized way. And uh, then, like ten months later, I couldn't remember anything. I couldn't remember why. I, why we had divorce, why it didn't work, all the bad stuff I just forgot. Hmm. And that happens to me a lot. <laughs> Did that mean you tried to get back together? No, no, of course not. <laughs> no, and then he died, unfortunately. And oh. I inherited his dog. That's one of the dogs I have. <laughs> you know, you this life that you've ended up living, I mean, you've been living in Marin for decades now. Mm-hmm. Have you ever considered leaving maybe, you know, Miami, yeah, warmer yeah. climate or going back to Chile or something? <laughs> Not Miami. No, <laughs> no, this is this this place is paradise. If you compare it with most places in the world and it, it really is wonderful. And I have a very good life here. When Trump was elected, I thought, well, it's time to leave. But I have been back in Chile very often since 1989 since we have democracy in Chile. And I find myself feeling as a foreigner also in Chile. Mm. Although I know the language and the sense of humor and I still have a few friends and I learn the landscape so well, I'm still a foreigner there because uh, the country has changed enormously and I have changed and the world has changed. Yeah. So that country that I have in my, in my head or in my heart no longer exists to the point that I wrote a book called My Invented Country mm. about the country that I have inside, not the real country. Mm. My dad has described that experience to me too. You know, when From I, where is your dad? Up, from Mexico. From Mexico. Yeah. He came, um, you know, just 19 uh, to the U.S., went back at 40. So I was actually born in Mexico City. And I, later on, I said like, well, you know, why did you leave? Uh, and, you know, he told me a few things, you know, I mean, that the country was more racist and sexist than he remembered. Uh, and it was not worth staying for, for that reason. But also that it uh, he didn't want me to grow up into the kind of actually a character not unlike Julian in, in your book, who's sort of this, you know, Mex uh, Latin American kind of masculine uh, archetype. Uh, he just kind of thought like people get mixed up, you know, men, men take on all these very bad qualities of machismo. And so that was one of the major reasons why uh, we, we came back to the United States. Well, your, your father must be a very enlightened person. <laughs> he really, is. really. He really is. Yeah. Yeah. What about your mother? She's from Massachusetts. She's from Massachusetts. And I think she liked Mexico. But of course, 
you know, Massachusetts and Mexico City was, I think, a, a difficult um, transition, even though, you know, I think for them it felt like a dream, you know, to be to be living there at the same time. I, I want to ask you, did you, um, do you consider yourself, like, does does the label immigrant, does that resonate with you? Or is that something that you think of when you're like, oh, I came to the U.S., yes. I'm an immigrant? Yeah. Yes. When you um, when you talk about immigrants from Europe, they are foreigners. When they are immigrants from Latin America, they are criminals. And I belong to a very privileged group of immigrants. I came I came here and I because I fell in lust with a guy, and I ended up marrying him. So I was I have never been undocumented, mm -hmm. and I have always been able to support myself with my writing. So that, that makes me very, very privileged. But I, but I have a foundation that works with women and, and children, the most vulnerable, and the most vulnerable at this point are Latino immigrants, the ones that are inside the country and the ones that are waiting at the border. Wow. We have some, um, we have some comments coming in. A few of them are about... Um, uh, family Secrets, which I thought maybe you would like. Oh, kind of interesting. Juicy, juicy yeah. stuff. Uh, Vicky, well, let's see. Uh, Wendy writes, it wasn't until I was grown that I found my mother had a sister who was living in the asylum a half mile away. She had been lobotomized years before and my mother would never visit her. I also learned my mother had a child with Down syndrome before me. She rejected him, believing mistakenly that Down syndrome was connected with mental illness and it was more proof that she was damaged goods. He died in an institution shortly after she abandoned him. It was only when I found out about these secrets that I began to understand my mother and myself. Wow. Wow. That's a novel. Wow. Yeah. Wendy, thank you so much for uh, sharing that with us. We're here talking with the novelist Isabel Allende. She says your story is a novel. It most certainly is, in fact, uh, a novel. Her new book is Violetta. And you can, of course, get in touch with a family secret that you learned late in life that changed the way you think about your family or for with a question for Isabel. Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. Get in touch on Twitter and Facebook or KQED Forum, or you can email your questions and comments to forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Have the privilege this morning of talking with the novelist Isabel Allende about her new book, Violetta, and how to live 
basically. Let's bring in uh, Patricia from San Jose. Hi, hi, uh, Isabel, Doña Isabel. <laughs> Hello, Patricia. <laughs> hey, I wanted to congratulate you on the release of your book. I've read many, many of your books. I started when I was a teenager with uh, La Casa de los Espíritus, mm-hmm. and I love your books ever since. Uh, even Paula, which I found excruciatingly hard to read. Um, I wanted to mention uh, an essay of yours that I use in my classes, my Spanish classes, that is called Mis Líos con el Sexo. And you wrote it a while ago, a long time ago. But it's one that my students really enjoy, and I enjoy too. It's so, um, you know, it's like you, like the way you come across, full of vitality and humor and curiosity and uh, yeah, I just wanted to share that with you. You've made uh, a lot of people happy. <laughs> Thank you. I have totally forgotten about that. I wonder what I wrote there. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> oh, it's really good. It's about how, you know, you were growing up and you were flat-chested and, and women would <laughs> uh, insert and then... You know, how embarrassing that was in certain situations. Yeah, they would move around and you would end up with yes. one of those breasts in your back. <laughs> it was terrible. Yeah. Right. And how back then everything was about breasts, right? And you, <laughs> like, yeah, you didn't fit in. And then later on with the liberation, and I guess Paula was doing research on... I don't know, sex toys, and you were carrying them across borders and <laughs> customs. They would ask you, what is this? And you say, oh, it's for my daughter. And, and <laughs> people would look at you weird. And, hey, Patricia, what's, really uh, what's the name of the essay again? One more time. It's Mis Lios con el Sexo, if I remember correctly. I think that's what I have it. El Sexo y Yo. I think it was called the sex, sex and I. Yeah. Was it was a title, I think. But it's in Spanish. So it's in Spanish. Could yeah. be, could be, could be. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, yeah I have it. Um, yeah, I have it somewhere. <laughs> and it's, it's really good. Thank you so much for that call, Patricia, and for, for sharing that essay uh, with us. Um, so I wanted to ask you a little bit more about the literary scene that you found yourself a part of. I mean, we're a Bay Area show, and I'm kind of fascinated by the way that this place changes people and inflects what they do. I know everyone thinks of you as a Chilean writer or a Latin American writer or South American, whatever it is that they're they're trying to do, a, a feminist writer. But how do you see yourself as a, as a Bay Area writer? Well, um, I have a few friends that are writers, and uh, I am very close to Book Passage, the, the bookstore here in Corte Madera. And so I have attended all their conferences and uh, through them, I have I got to meet a lot of the writers, but, but I don't belong to any sort of um, literary club, you know, mm-hmm. not in Latin America and not here. I think that in that sense, as a writer, I am quite isolated, mostly because I write in Spanish. That's so interesting. You know, I had a question about that too, which is, do you, you, you write in Spanish and you don't translate your own works. You have a translator. What I, have you... a trans- I have a translator, but if it's nonfiction, I can write in both languages. So I wrote uh, The Soul of a Woman uh, with both languages on, on the screen. I would write a sentence in Spanish and then in English. And I wrote the, that's how I wrote the book in English. 
But do you are do you think you're a difficult person to translate for? Like, do you go through word by word and tell the translator, uh, you know, I think this word choice versus that one? I am. I think it's easy to translate me because my my language and my books are pretty transparent. They are not uh, challenging in any way. Um, and I work closely with the translator because the translation into English is very important. My books are translated to 40 plus languages. And often the, the translator, let's say in Finland, will check the English translation. They, they translate from Spanish, but they will check the English. So uh, it's important for me that the English be as, as close to the original text as possible. But I understand that language is also cultural. Some mm-hmm. things that might work in Spanish don't work in English. I remember that I had, when I had uh, Margaret Sawyer Peden as my translator for oh, 19 books, I think, mm. we were really, really close. And Margaret Page would say, you know what? I need to tone this a little, to down, tone down this a little bit. It sounds sentimental in English. Mm-hmm. And she was right. What you can say in Spanish, because we have a whole language for love and sentiments, doesn't work in another language, maybe. And also what is lost usually is a sense of humor, because what is funny in another place might not be funny here at all. It's politically incorrect. Let's bring in Don from Berkeley. Yes, uh, Ms. Allende, uh, hello. Um, I just wanted to extend my... um, an appreciation to you that I have held for 30 some odd years, um, which has to do with the House of the Spirits. And uh, I found myself um, in the uh, Peruvian Andes uh, in 1987 um, uh, in uh, and, um and ill, actually, and also not able to move around because of the um, the, the the conflict that was occurring there. And um, uh, I had your book with me that I was saving, The House of the Spirits. And I have to say that um, it was my companion, my best friend, and truly the thing that got me through uh, those, those days of, of being alone there. And I think about that book, uh, as I do many of your other books, um, including Paula, but I think about that one in particular, and I'm so uh, gratified to be able to thank you in person. Thank you. Thank you for reading the book with an open heart. Uh, They made a movie in 95 uh, with the House of the Spirits that wasn't very Latin American, but now they're going to make a miniseries. Really? Yeah, eight or ten episodes. And it will be directed by two young women directors with an all, an all Latino cast and probably half of it spoken in Spanish. No kidding. Which uh, yeah. Netflix or Amazon or <laughs> Amazon, apparently. No yeah. kidding. Wow. Congratulations. That I thank you. That's going to be an event. Um, I you know, I wondered about La Casa de los Espíritus. Is that. Having a book that's that huge of a hit as your first book, uh, as it, you you had you've had so much life since then, but it is just it, it is a mega <laughs> a mega moment uh, in literature. Is it obviously there's lots of good things you got to do kind of whatever you wanted for the rest of your life. So you know don't want to say that this was bad, but is it on a creative level? 
is it somewhat difficult to have that kind of work kind of sitting there? I, I don't think in those terms. I, I tackle every new project with uh, with great enthusiasm, and I. But I do realize that I have lost the innocence that I had with the House of the mm. Spirits. I started writing that book as a letter to my grandfather, and I had no idea it would become a novel. And when it when I had five hundred and sixty pages on the kitchen counter, <laughs> then yeah, then it wasn't a letter anymore. What was it? Was it a memoir, a chronology of the family, a novel? I had no idea. And I- so the the success of the book caught everybody by surprise, mostly me. And since then, um, I have learned more about the the book industry, critics, reviewers. I I had never read a book review in my life, (laughs) never go to a a workshop or or some classes, nothing. I, I, I was totally isolated in working in a school in Venezuela. So, um, the innocence, uh, with which I wrote that book, I could never have it again. You, in an interview, I'm just going to read this to you. You, you said it, so, <laughs> but it's absolute. I, I thought this was just such a beautiful way of describing that book. You said, uh, I wanted to tell him, your grandfather, that I remembered everything he ever told me, and he could go in peace because it would not be lost. I think the House of the Spirits was like a crazy attempt to recover everything I had lost my country, my family, my past, my friends, and put everything together in these pages. It was something I could carry with me and show to the world and say, this is what was. This is my world. It gave me a voice. Incredibly, it was a success from the beginning. allowed me to continue as a writer. And I wondered if there's a kind of connection between that book, which began as a letter, and this book, which is also uh, in in the form of a letter. Like, did you see these two books as sort of being being bookends of a certain thing. You know, I didn't, but mm. everybody else has. <laughs> so, no, really, Alex, it's, it's very strange because everybody has made the connection and they find analogies. And I wasn't thinking about the House of the Spirits at all. I thought that the only thing the books had in common was the time in which they occur. That is the, the 20th century, that in the, in the House of the Spirits, it covers until 1973. Uh, and in, in, in this is the whole century. But, but I didn't see any other analogy, and, and people do see it everywhere. That's so interesting. Let's bring in Marta from Cloverdale. Okay. Uh, buenos dias. Um, buenos dias. <laughs> yes. Um, I was just, um, you know, in a group of uh, professional women uh, from San Francisco and uh, a Marine, in the in the 1990s, and uh, your your daughter-in-law was part of that group. It was not a book club. It was just a group for us to talk, chismear, and talk about you know frivolous things. And we always waited for you to show up at the door, but <laughs> but we never had that joy. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, I haven't been, you know, I've been out of the uh, state and I just came back and uh, I'm now in politics in Cloverdale. And and what we loved about those meetings is that we always waited for you because we love the frivolity, uh, la frivolidad, uh, that, that many times comes through in your work uh, because you're able to do your profession 
and your own womanhood in your work. And we had to put our work aside and talk about these things among ourselves. I mean, how are you able to do that? And is it just natural? Is it on purpose? Uh, Because we feel that, and I feel that that's one of the things that appeals to us. Well, thank you for that. I didn't show up because you never invited me. <laughs> oh, come <Yeah>. on. She can say that invited you, you every time. <laughs> I, I don't remember that. Well, in any case, I'm sorry if I didn't show up. We can go check the letters and just find out. Yeah, if there was <laughs> yeah I will go to the garage. Uh, so, you know what? I have been able to do a lot in my life because I have had so much help. Help from other women. First of all, when I was raising my kids, I had like three jobs and I could do that as a journalist. I had three jobs because I had a mother-in-law who lived next door. I had an adopted grandmother who spent time with us. I had the nannies that took care of my children. Then later, when I became a writer, I had the best agent in the world who was a, a, a Catalan woman, Carmen Balcells. And in every instance, editors have been women and, and everybody that, that has helped me along the way has allowed me to do what I do. Uh, I have never been isolated. And I think that what you did in that group of getting together, para chismear, as you say, to gossip, um, that's what women do. And, and that's what gives them power. Women alone are very vulnerable. Women together are invincible. That's beautiful. Uh, we have a few other secret emails, uh, Isabel. They're, oh, good, some, good. Some of, these are, some of these are quite fun. Samantha writes, My Kentucky-raised country girl grandmother, who lived to be 99 years old, born in 1918, let it slip one day as her dementia set in that her first husband was actually her second husband. He was Hispanic and with whom she spent a lot of time in Mexico uh, on a gold claim trying to strike it rich. They went on to live many years together, and then he died. She went on to marry again to my grandfather, who turned out to be her third. I don't know more about this first husband, but I'm sure there's a story there, too. Vicky writes, My cousins and I on Zoom are comparing notes about our grandparents who lived in South Texas. We noticed that the only existing picture of our grandmother smiling is one where she is in a horse-drawn carriage in what looks like Mexico City with an attractive Mexican man named Pascual. His name was on the back of the photo. She was older but not yet a widow. We're still trying to solve the mystery, but are all glad she had some happy times. You know, and I wonder if, you know, so many families have these kinds of uh, small kind of every everyday mysteries. And in your books, those kind of are, are allowed to coexist right alongside the big events of the world. Well, I like to write novels that have a sort of epic breath because I think that external events, I mean, political and social events, are like crossroads that force us to make decisions in our lives and sometimes influence our lives so much that we are determined by what is happening out of our control in the world or in the country or in the world. And so that's what I write about. It would be almost impossible for me to write a novel, for example, about a couple in an apartment in Brooklyn who are fighting for divorce <laughs> or something like that, and they have a therapist. Because that would be because, so funny if that if you wrote that <laughs> book, actually. <laughs> because because I need the world to get in, 
and, and, and the push the boundaries and get people out of themselves and participating in what's happening in the world. Yeah. Uh, so that's what I write about. You know, do you think about your place in the literary canon globally in Latin America? And no, how do you think Alexis, you don't? I don't. Of course not. Look, men have this idea that they will transcend. What is my legacy? Women don't think that way. We, have, we are more reasonable. We know that nothing lasts, everything dies and deteriorates, and that's it. It's a natural course of things. How do you want to be remembered then? I don't want to be remembered. Maybe my grandchildren will remember me for a little bit until they won't. And that's it. Hmm. I think people are going to remember you. I want to read you some of the compliments that have been coming in um, to our our inboxes for you. Uh, Paula writes, I just want to say hello to Isabel Allende and tell her that I still have an autographed photo of her hanging Hmm. at my empanada shop, Chile Lindo. Also, I am following the extraordinary political changes in Chile, and I am deeply moved to witness poetic justice in the country of poets. Mm -hmm. Marianne tweets, everything she writes is a treasure for the soul. In South America, we all have grandmothers and grand aunts that were pioneers and so ahead of their times. And Victoria writes, Miss Allende is one of my favorite writers. She is a great gift to us all, and with her sharp wit and her generosity of spirit, which is as big as all of the oceans of the world. Thank you so much for all that. Are you going to read also the other messages of people who detest me? De- definitely not. Everybody, <laughs> all of them that came in was, were great. Uh, we have like 20 seconds, but I know we just passed January 8th, which is the day of the calendar mm-hmm. year on which you begin mm-hmm. all new books. Are you working on a new book? Well, the pandemic has made me very productive because I don't have a life. I'm just inside an attic writing. I wrote Soul of a Woman, Violeta, another novel that is finished. And on January 8th, I started another book. That's so wonderful. Well, we will await those with great anticipation. Thank you so, so, so much for joining us again. We've been talking with the... Oh, thank you. We've been talking with the novelist Isabel Allende. Her new book is Violeta. Go pick it up. It's really a wonderful book. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.